Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 102, The Islands. So, deep breath. Irene was replaced by Nicephorus, her finance minister. He led the army into the lands of the Bulgars and never came back. He was replaced by Michael I, who had no experience of military life. He was replaced by Leo V, his senior general, who restored iconoclasm. He was then murdered and replaced by Michael II, a fellow general who pretended he hadn't murdered him and left the administration as he'd found it. We then had the Civil War, which ate up four years and a lot of resources. Here we are then. Michael of Amorium is now indisputably Michael II. But if he was hoping his troubles were behind him, then he had another thing coming. Michael's much-loved wife, Thecla, had passed away during Thomas's siege. Now that the war was over, Michael agreed to marry again. He was advised that a bride from the Isaurian dynasty would be ideal, seeing as how, you know, he had no legitimacy given he, well, murdered his predecessor. Do you remember the details of Constantine VI's marital life? Uh, Well, his first wife, Maria of Amnia, had uh, two daughters with him, uh, but then he sent them all off to a convent and married his mistress. Uh, This incident may ring a bell, because that was when Theodore of the Studious Monastery objected strongly to this illegal marriage, launching himself into the narrative where he's resided for the past three decades. Anyway, Michael married one of Constantine VI's daughters. This was Efrosini, who was in her early thirties and had lived in a convent for most of her life. She was a good choice dynastically, and most of Michael's regime got on board. Uh, But of course, to bring things full circle, Theodore objected strongly to a woman of the cloth breaking her vows to marry anyone. Fortunately for the emperor, the rigorously moral monk passed away two years later in 826. Two years after that, 
the former patriarch Nicephorus also died. So the pressure on Michael to change the official ecclesiastical position or to amend his marital situation eased. Both of those staunch iconophiles would become posthumous heroes when iconoclasm is overthrown in a few years' time. Back in 824, though, with Thomas's partisans being slowly hunted down, the emperor felt he should retaliate against the Arabs for their support of the usurping general. So Michael ordered land and sea assaults on the caliphate while Mamun's forces were still occupied, putting down various rebellions. The next year, in 825, the caliph returned the favour, and at sea, his forces found that the Kiviriotoan fleet, the one which defended southern Anatolia, was in a pretty poor state. They were, of course, on the losing side in the civil war, and had not yet recovered. This fact was to prove very significant very soon. During our tour of the empire at the end of the century, I briefly discussed Byzantine Sicily. Brought back into the empire by Belisarius, briefly the seat of Constance II, but otherwise not playing a significant role in our story. Despite its productive fields, Sicily was never key to the defence of Constantinople. And as you may have noticed, the defence of the capital is the overriding strategic goal of the Roman government. So while money was spent filling Anatolia with themes and outfitting three different fleets to guard the approaches to the Bosphorus, very little time was spent thinking through the defence of the empire's largest island. The hope remained that despite their occasional success at sea, the Arabs would stick to the land and leave the Roman islands alone. As we've also discussed in the past, it was much easier going from north to south in the eastern Mediterranean. That's just the way the winds and currents work. So despite having fleets in Syria and Egypt, the Caliphate had never made serious attempts to capture Aegean islands let alone Italian ones. Even now, in 826, it was a Roman, rather than an Arab, that set off a chain of events which would lead to the loss of Sicily. There have been a couple of serious revolts on the island in the past century. One came against Leo III during the siege, another came against Irene not that long ago. In both cases, we don't have information on what sparked the uh, local uprising, and we assume that the lack of oversight and the relative prosperity of Sicily tempted their governors into dreaming of independence. In this case, it's possible that Thomas the Slav's rebellion, having cut the island off from regular communication for several years, uh, that this problem was bound to arise. When Michael asked for back taxes, perhaps there was resentment. Whatever the cause, the Tormach, Euphemius, was the man who got things rolling. 
The story goes that Euphemius, an active military commander, had taken Sicily's small fleet and raided the North African coast. This was, of course, the former province of Roman Africa, now run from Karawan. Future Tunisia was no longer in the hands of the caliphate. Instead, it was an independent emirate under the control of the Akhlabid family. We'll get into the details at the end of the century. But as Euphemius sailed back to Syracuse, a new Stratihos arrived from Constantinople. His name was Constantine, and it seems he was going to arrest the insubordinate Euphemius. As I say, we don't know exactly what he'd done to earn imperial disfavour. Euphemius decided not to go quietly, and most of his men followed him. They killed Constantine and captured Syracuse, the island's capital. By the end of 826, Euphemius had himself declared emperor. As sometimes happens with revolts in far-off places, men looked around and thought, I don't want to be held responsible when the government inevitably comes and puts this down. So one of Euphemius's fellow officers, Plato, slipped away, rallied the rest of the island, and challenged Euphemius to meet him on the field of battle. When the two sides met, Euphemius lost and fled back to Syracuse. Sensing that he couldn't hold the city, the rebel Vasilefs ordered his men to man the fleet and set sail for Africa. Euphemius sought an audience with the emir, Ziadat Allah, and said, sorry about that whole raiding business, would you be interested in returning me to power? The emir was tempted, and eventually outfitted about 70 ships, and sent 700 cavalry and 1,000 infantry back with Euphemius to Sicily. This new force was far superior to the thousand or so regular troops on the island, and Euphemius agreed to share his revenues with his new patron once he was in control. In the summer of 827, the combined force landed at Mazara on the western shore of Sicily. Syracuse is on the east coast. Plato gathered up the local soldiers and marched out to meet them, but was defeated and fled back to the capital. Poor Plato actually crossed to Italy, hoping to get some help from the Duke of Calabria, but was executed instead, presumably for his part in the original revolt. Despite his success, Euphemius quickly realised that he had little control over the army that he led. The Arab commander, Assad, didn't trust the Romans and kept them out of the loop at all times. To be fair to him, several garrisons opened their gates to him after the first battle, claiming that they were Euphemius loyalists, when it was pretty clear that they weren't. Assad decided to only trust his own men. As this army marched across the island, many towns or cities made a decision about whether to let them in, shut the gates, or make some other kind of deal, some kind of token submission. By the time they approached Syracuse, Euphemius realised that he wasn't able to influence Assad, and so he sent a secret message to those inside, 
don't open your gates to the Arabs, whatever you do. Assad knew that the city was the key to the whole island, and so he set up a siege by land and sea as winter set in. Back in the capital, Michael was finally making sense of this garbled story. The part about Arab troops landing on Roman soil made enough sense, so something had to be done. The emperor outfitted a large fleet and prepared them to sail in early 828. Presumably, the capital's ships had to provide the core of this expedition. But some needed to stay behind, so despite being in a rebuilding phase, the Aegean and Kivirioton fleets had to join in. Even the Venetians sent some boats. Everyone recognised that Sicily was vulnerable. It was much closer to the African shore than it was to Constantinople, and it would be much easier to prevent it from being captured than it would be to retake it. Initially, everything seemed to go well. Back at Syracuse, the Arabs were suffering from their siege. The countryside had been picked clean, and after several months of winter deprivation, cavalrymen were looking at their horses as more meal than transport. Assad was amongst the dead as disease spread. When the imperial fleet arrived in early summer, the Arabs abandoned their positions immediately. In a moment tinged with irony, though, the Roman fleet surrounded the harbour at Syracuse, trapping the besieging navy inside. The Arabs abandoned their ships and set them on fire to prevent them from falling into enemy hands. Though this looked to all present like a great victory, it meant that thousands of Arabs were now stranded on the island and therefore more determined to stay put. If they'd been allowed to sail away, perhaps they wouldn't have come back. The fleeing Arabs headed to the west of the island and began capturing towns. The Venetians sailed home and the Romans sat down in Syracuse to plot how best to proceed. However, in war, as in comedy, timing is everything. Ships soon arrived in the harbour with news that Crete, second largest island in the empire, had also fallen to Arab invaders. The fleet was ordered to divide in two and divert the bulk of its force to dealing with this new crisis. Let's take a step back. In 818, a major revolt took place over in Umayyad-controlled Spain. The central authorities had stamped it out with severe force, and a whole community was forced into exile. This was a Muslim population, but made up of both former Romans and Arabs. One group sailed to Egypt, hoping to find a better life in the caliphate. They settled just outside Alexandria during the decade-long civil war which followed the death of Harun al-Rashid. As I've mentioned a couple of times, Egypt fell into anarchy during this period. The governor rebelled against central authority and other troops refused to obey his orders. Amidst the chaos, the Spanish exiles seized Alexandria. They made the city their new home 
and collected its revenues for themselves. The good times came to an end, though, in 827, the same year that Euphemius' revolt began. As you know, the new Caliph Mamun was in place and restoring order. One of his generals put Alexandria under siege that summer, and negotiations began. The leader of the Spanish Arabs was called Abu Hafs, and he soon realised that he wouldn't be able to get a good deal for his people, so he thought about sailing to Byzantium and asking for settlement there. With news of Thomas's rebellion filtering through, though, Abu Hafs decided to do a little reconnaissance of his own. He sent a dozen ships north to Crete, which he seems to have known was practically defenceless. Like most Roman islands, Crete would have had no more than a militia to guard its towns, but normally it would have had marines and ships stationed there. Except, of course, that they were all off in Sicily. Not only was the island easy to raid, but there were no fortified cities. And so Abu Haf saw an opportunity to not only migrate to Romania, but to bypass imperial authority while doing it. In spring 828, Abu Hafs loaded his people onto 40 ships and sailed for the Aegean. His people consisted of about 12,000 men and women, of whom 3,000 were veteran soldiers. They anchored at Suda Bay on the northwest of the island and plundered it for 12 days. Then they set about building a defensible position. They picked a spot roughly in the centre of the island on the north coast. They dug a huge trench around it and named it after that word, Khandak in Arabic, the modern city of Heraklion. The local Cretans were fairly harshly treated, as you might expect in a situation which was life and death for the Arabs. The Stratihos of the Anatolikon was aware of what was happening and used the few ships he had to keep an eye on the Arabs. His report reached Michael, who sent what ships he could spare in the hopes that this was no more than a raid. But this scratch force was easily driven off, and hence the order was sent to Sicily to split the fleet there in two. Are you with me so far? So... Now, Craterus, the Stratihos of the Civiriotone fleet, is tasked with sailing from Sicily to Crete and wiping out this new threat. Though he commands over 50 ships, he only has about 2,000 seasoned marines on board. They arrive in the autumn of 828, so the Arabs have had several months to bed in. The two sides meet and fight a pitched battle. Roman discipline wins the day, and after an exhausting fight, the Arabs flee the field. Roman indiscipline now takes over, and the troops celebrate their victory with wine. Suddenly, it's Plisca all over again. The Arabs have nowhere to run. This is their new home, and they are willing to die for it. That night, they launch an attack on the Roman camp, achieve surprise, and cut them down. Apparently, Craterus is crucified afterwards. 
Back in Constantinople, Michael is greeted with this terrible news. With his resources stretched to breaking point, he will need to find new solutions. There is some good news from Sicily, though. The Arabs tried to take the mountain fortress of Hena and failed. They sent the emperor Euphemius to negotiate with the locals, and they stabbed him to death for all the trouble he'd brought them. 829 would prove to be the last year of Michael's life. He decided to prioritise Sicily over Crete. It was a far wealthier island, and with his troops in position, it made sense to focus his energy there and return to the Aegean later. He dispatched Theodotus, a former Stratikos of the island, and some new troops. Initially, the Arabs defeated the invading force, but Theodotus knew the terrain and was able to ambush his enemy and drive them off. But this merely stabilised the situation. The Romans now held most of the cities on the east of the island, the Arabs most of those in the west. No easy solution was forthcoming, and the stalemate would drag on for decades to come. Meanwhile, that summer, the Cretan Arabs took to their ships and began raiding. They did particular damage to the Cyclades, the small group of islands directly north of their new capital. It was proving very hard to recruit new men to the Kiviriotone theme. News of the new arrivals had everyone spooked. So Michael authorised a massive signing bonus of 40 gold coins for men who would sign up. This was about six years' pay, and soon enough volunteers came forward. They cleared the Arabs out of the Cyclades, but made no headway in the battle for Crete. If the Byzantine government had wanted to, they could have driven the Arabs from both islands with relative ease. But in order to do this, they would have had to remove men from Anatolia. That's where the best soldiers lived, and they could not be spared. Though there were few raids during these particular years, it was pretty clear that soon the caliphate would be pacified, and annual raiding would resume. Michael was right not to redistribute his resources, but unfortunately it would take over a century to finally put an end to the Cretan menace. And in the meantime, the men and women of the Aegean coasts on both sides would suffer the terror of pirate raids descending on them without warning. While over in Sicily, the Spanish and African emirs would send reinforcements that would lead the Sicilian war to drag on even longer until it was the Muslim side which emerged victorious. That was not an imminent conclusion, though. At this stage, the attacks were a nuisance, but not a huge problem. Throughout 829, the emperor had grown ill, though, and in October, he died, apparently from kidney failure. Michael was about 60 and had ruled the empire for nine war-torn years. I'm sure he was a perfectly able soldier and administrator, but Michael's reputation can't really escape the murder of Leo. 
I imagine he had reasons beyond those which the historical record records. But without knowing them, it seems like a crass and selfish act. It also unleashed a huge civil war on the empire and definitely contributed to the loss of the islands. The one thing which Michael succeeded in doing was leaving an adult son to succeed him. He was the first emperor to do that for half a century. That alone ensured a certain amount of stability, which the empire desperately needed. Next time, young Theophilus takes charge with great plans for his future. But sadly, his reign is doomed to be remembered for the collapse of iconoclasm. Before I go, I should mention that I was interviewed on Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy podcast about John Chrysostom. Uh, We had a really good discussion. Uh, If you've not bought the sale episodes, but you'd like to know more about John and uh, the early church and life in Antioch back in the uh, early 5th century, and his uh, tangles with the Emperor Arcadius at Constantinople, etc., then go check out that episode. And while you're there, check out the rest of the podcast. Go to your app, iTunes, or a2zhistorypage.com.